Welcome back to the Ownership Economy. Before we get started, we'd just like to let our listeners know that we are moving to a bi-monthly schedule for podcasts and we're in the early stages of planning for an invite-only conference at the United Nations on October 10th on the Ownership Economy for Investors, Entrepreneurs and Policymakers. If you're interested in learning more, please email summit at ownershipeconomy.com. Please enjoy. This week, Jahid and Martin welcome back Nathan Schneider, a thought leader who enlightened us on the intricacies of platform cooperatives, DEOs, and the burgeoning ownership economy in our 2021 conversation. In this episode, we catch up with Nathan to understand the remarkable transformations that have swept these spaces over the last few years and how these shifts have influenced his perspective. Hey, Nathan, welcome back. It's so good to be here. Thanks for letting me back in. It's the first time I've, had, I've got to say welcome back. So I think we've officially, we've officially sort of graduated as a podcast. We're, uh, what are we, Martin? We're 18 months you're, in. You're already recycling your guests. <laughs> exactly. Hey, it only took 61 episodes. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing all you've accomplished in that time. Ah, yes. Thank you very much, That's Nathan. Good. But, but you know, less kiddingly, super great to have you back. Um uh, we, you know, we caught up a while back and you had mentioned some of the stuff that you've been working on, especially uh, in the, on the policy side, looking at DAOs, continuing some of the work you've been doing in stakeholder ownership. And honestly, it all just piqued my interest. And I was like, we got to, we got to get this guy back on. There seems like there's new developments. There's a lot of learnings, especially since the last 18 months have felt like uh, 30 years in terms of, uh, you know, just drama and legal and politics and all that. So really happy you're back here, man. Absolutely. And, uh, yeah, I think, on. where do you want to go? Well, I think even though you're a repeat guest, we should quickly start with who is Nathan Schneider. So if you can give us a maybe 30 second background on who is Nathan Schneider, and then we'll get into it. Yeah, I'm a professor of media studies at the University of Colorado Boulder in the U.S. in Colorado, right next to the mountains. And I uh, have been working for the last decade or so, basically just trying to enable shared ownership and shared governance to happen more in more of our economy, enabling people to benefit from the wealth they're creating and and to experience democracy, not just you know every few years, but uh, in everyday life. Nice, yeah, that's always a good way to put it too. Because I feel like I haven't been I haven't been deeply involved or deeply embedded in American culture for a while. Being on this side now in Barcelona for the last three and a half years, but the one um, the one angle of democracy that seems to sort of go go missing, even though there is a, a deep tradition of it in the U.S., is the e- economic democracy, right? So um, always good. You're always good for a conversation on that front, my friend. They're tied together. You know, it's what we forget. I think what we've forgotten so much is the the way in which we we, we only see be, par- partly because of the, like the nationalization of cable news. You know, everything's about like who's president. And we forget that like in the 1830s, when Alexis Tocqueville came to the United States and tried to figure out like how this democracy thing was working, he, you know, the big observation that that makes, you know, the book democracy in America canonical is that like practice in everyday life is what makes it possible to have democracy at a larger scale. Like you just don't, it doesn't just happen 
you know, at the at the highest level, you have to have it at every level, you know, you have to be doing it in local associations, people have to be yeah. practicing it every day, um, in order to do it in any kind of reasonable way at higher levels, and he broke down all different ways in which that, in which those connections occur, you know, and he's just one figure in a much longer tradition of people recognizing this, including anti-colonial um, leaders like CLR James, who saw you know, the process of decolonization is also a process of democratization or W.E.B. Du Bois, who saw, you know, yeah. uh, 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 reconstruction um, as as requiring what he called abolition democracy. You know, you have to you there is just no shortcut around this stuff. And so when we see, you know, large scale political democracy falling apart and, you know, nobody is experiencing you know, democratic practice in their daily lives, or many people are not, you know, it's, there's a connection, I think. Yeah, there's a, there's a distinct lack of agency, I think that a lot of people, especially in the DAO space speak about, about why they got into it. So I think that's a good dovetail to sort of get into the the stuff you mentioned when you, you know, when you said this stuff, all right. So, you know, last time we talked about this stuff, it included the stuff like platform cooperatives, DAOs, and uh, I think, uh, you know, maybe I don't know if I remember this correctly, but you know, the ownership economy concept um, is probably a bit older than 2019, 2018, but that had mostly popped up on people's radars and uh, venture capitalists were talking about it and it was beginning to be swallowed up whole by crypto. So I think it'd be good to check in with you. We, we spoke in late 2021 and you're, you are deeply involved in this in a number of threads. In addition to being a professor, you work with MetaGov, uh, an organization that's really looking at how to build governance tooling and this governance muscle in more people. And so um, how are those spaces that you're involved in, whether it's platform co-ops, governance, the, uh, at the academic side, how have those spaces really developed since the last time we spoke in late 2021? What are the major developments? Um, you know, I, I mean, I think in, in a lot of ways, the... Um, uh, the important work uh, is um, has continued um, and and progressed and and in a lot of ways like the things that are on the headlines that many people are seeing about for instance like Web three and crypto like in the spaces that I'm in we don't see a lot of it right um, you know the the things that we're doing around trying to make you know DAOs more governable or um, or figuring out regulatory frameworks for for collective ownership and governance, like a lot of it is not um, is is kind of insulated from from things like FTX collapse and the the right. things that are going on with these with these big exchanges um, because it's it's kind of in a different world. They're connected, um, and certainly there's a lot less froth and a lot less like external interest and curiosity and support a lot of the people who i respect generally outside of crypto like are now like very very um down on anything that we're doing in this in this context um and it's just a reminder of how like speculative value is connected to um you know what people under capitalism think matters and that's really um, that's really concerning. It's something that, you know, we should also really be careful about in moments where there's more froth, where there's more kind of speculative energy. Um, and that's exactly when we're not worried about it too. <laughs> What's that? That's exactly when we're not worried about it too. <laughs> right, right. When we're at peak froth. Absolutely. And it's, 
you know, those are moments where you just, where you need to be in some ways, even, even more careful. Um, but I, at the same time, you know, I think there's been a lot of distraction. A lot of people are, are anxious about like the regulatory questions around, you know, what, what to my mind is just kind of like basic bad, bad capitalism running rampant in the same ways that it, that it always has. Um, and, when we think about, for instance, policy, you know, a lot of the a lot of what people in the crypto world are trying to do right now is just like bring crypto into the existing regulatory framework, whether it's through commodities or securities or, or whatever it is. And um, from my perspective, working with co-ops, you know, outside of tech and inside of tech for for a long time, um, the what's important about the regulatory uh, landscape is actually that it's not working for us for shared ownership anyway. It's it, it wasn't working for, you know, cooperatives and a lot of forms of shared ownership that we really need, um, whether you're talking about crypto or not. And so the idea of just bringing crypto into that system is very unappealing. So I'm really interested in um, in how can we turn this moment into something that both enables us to you know, to crack down on some of the, you know, the profound wrongdoing that's going on, but also just shifts the conversation and shifts the set of possibilities to say, oh, actually, we need, we need different shared ownership legislation anyway. Um, we need different frameworks and infrastructures for shared ownership. And and by the way, that's not just at the level of um, policy at the that governments make. I think that's also a responsibility of policy that we make on protocols. Um, and mm -hmm. that's that's something, you know, that I think a lot of, you know, especially like those who are the most kind of radical crypto uh, maximalists, you know, who want to remake society through protocols. You know, if you're serious about that, there's a lot of policymaking that needs to happen there. And there's a lot of policy that actually is happening there that doesn't get called policy and that I want to name as policy. Um, so when I talk about policy, I want to I want to I, I want to make sure we're talking about both things. We're talking about the technical design of protocols, which also shape what is possible and thinkable and available, as well as you know the policy that gets made by governments. When we talk about policy on the pod, we're usually talking about the latter. So I'd love to hear an example as well, because we're basically back into backing into it here. Um, what is a what is an example for you uh, where you think that the folks who are involved in you know, working in DAOs, or if they're still around, or the folks who are talking about protocol governance, you know, what is an example of policy that maybe they wouldn't consider as policy, but that they are just living and breathing every day and potentially changing and manipulating as they go. Yeah, I mean, every aspect of, of protocol design is um, is a kind of policy. And you see it articulated in some of the bywords um, in, in you know, crypto context. Like, for instance, censorship resistance, right, is a term that people use a lot around protocols. Um, it turns out that you know, blockchains have some, you know, some properties that seem to support practices like censorship, censorship resistance, but they, which means, you know, uh, uh, some kind of um, prevention of, of, of speech being censored or canceled or removed, um, uh, or, or transactions in particular. Um, but there are also properties in these systems that do allow censorship. I mean, for instance, a major debate over the last year in the context of Ethereum has been around um, 
whether to essentially um, enforce U.S. sanctions law uh, as a censorship practice among among um, you know among validators in, in Ethereum. That is a practice of policy, um, and 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 you know it's 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 something that people talk about in technical terms. It's people to things people talk about in ideological terms. But I think we really do need to have this start thinking about um, the making of these of these um, protocols as a form of, of legislation. Um, also, you know, moving over to um, less less um, energy intensive uh, uh, protocol designs. That's a form of policy making. You could imagine that going further and saying, hey, we're going to revoke the right of a node to be on this on this protocol, if it can be demonstrated to be emitting carbon at all, you know there are all sorts of ways that one could um, could encode different kinds of policies, either at the level of you know a, a base chain or at um, increasingly now I think the layer two ecosystem where people are building protocols on top of protocols. I think that's in some ways a, a more important space of policy making and differentiation. Um, where you know you could imagine L2s wanting to have features like re reversibility of transactions for corporate clients and things like this, and and the more we get into um, defining what these protocols can do and 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 uh, attaching them to certain use cases, we are doing policy, and I think we need to we need to embrace that rather than as I perceive it, a lot of the the ecosystem actually is running away from that idea that. That this stuff is policy. Oh no, we're just building technical systems. We're just solving technical problems. We're just doing the engineering. That seems to be one of the age-old things in the space with tech, especially where it's like, oh, no, 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 we're not. We, we're not doing politics. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna name this person. He's actually a friend of mine. But I was on a panel uh, recently at a at a blockchain event where, um, you if you have any familiarity with the Cosmos ecosystem, Nathan, it's very political. And so some some people uh, on the panel were like, ah, what do I look forward to in 2023? And they asked him the investor, what do you look forward to? And he's like, ah, less politics. Man, I really don't like it. <laughs> it's like, but almost like you like you pointed out, almost anything that you could potentially even propose to a, 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 the way a protocol works could have a political angle. It's just not something you want to think about. Well, I argue it should have a political angle, and and it does already. Um, I mean, Bitcoin is full of politics from day one. You know, the 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 first message encoded in a in in a block in Bitcoin was a political message about Indeed. central bank regulation of of the economy. And um, come on, get over it. It it was political from the start. So to me, the challenge is okay. Let's figure out better politics. Let's 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 get explicit about it and say what kind of politics would be healthy in this context um, so that we're not running away from it. And we have a space in which people are able to come together and say like, what actually are our values? And, you know, I, I think a, a, a big part of politics is being able to have differentiated spaces, right? So that people who have some alignment can, can share that alignment together and be in their spaces together and, 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 and not, get in the way of people who have different kinds of, you know, alignments and, and, you know, and, and politics can be fun when you, when you set it up in a, in a healthy way, when you set up a situation that imagines there's no politics, when in fact, um, you have a, a, 
a system shot through with values and shot through with um, with with design features and and disaffordances, um, you know, then yeah, when when politics arises and you're not prepared for it and you don't have any containers for it, um, you know, it's going to be ugly. That's why you know, for instance, when you go visit like the U.S. Capitol, which is a very ugly place that you know has done a lot of harm in the world, still there's a lot of there's it's a it's a dedicated space. There is a lot of ritual and tradition that is all designed over over centuries to try to get you know, to, to try to encourage people in that space to behave with a certain amount of decorum and to mm-hmm. even enjoy certain aspects of what they're, of, of what they're doing. Um, you know, building politics means creating a culture, a political culture. Um, and, uh, and, and that's something that, you know, that I think we need to take some responsibility for. Yeah, definitely. Because the systems on the, you know, the, and I've said this before in the pod too, what the, the way that, the people who don't want to be political then take it in the way that you're saying is they basically just prune the complexity out of social relations in such a way that only the part that can be addressed by a protocol ends up getting there. But that doesn't mean it still doesn't have political implications. It's just you've decided to ignore them. <laughs> right. So totally. I think this is a great, uh, you keep, you keep backing right into the, where we want to go on the pod, man. So thank you very much. Um, the, uh, your, so what we really wanted to get into the meetup, which you're, you're really getting into here is the, you recently, um, I believe in February. So you wrote a really great piece on mirror, which we'll link in the show notes on a policy platform for Dallas. Right. And so, uh, you've sort of summed up why, but really if we are dealing with so many, um, both internal and external political concerns, but we don't necessarily have frameworks for how to handle conflict, how to uh, handle transparency and control and governance, then somewhat predictably, you you then see the the chaos that results, right? That we've kind of seen in the last, not just the last 18 months, probably something more like uh, the last three years in the DAO space. So let's kind of start from the top then. You know, you mapped out a policy platform from Dallas before we get into the meat of it. Uh, why do we need one, right? What kind of led us to this moment? Maybe someone's coming to the pod and saying, oh, I don't know what Terra is. I, I don't know what is Celsius. What is FTX? Um, those are probably what the common, you know, the person who's not necessarily involved in crypto thinks of when they think of this. So, but we're also talking about things that aren't necessarily in that realm, but that are still very much need a platform and scaffolding. So curious to hear then, like, what do you, what is really, why do we need a policy platform for DAOs? The the thing that I'm anxious about, right, is that DAOs represent this space of opportunity to to, um, explore organizational possibilities, right? I mean, currently in the world we inhabit, the legal regime we have in particular, in order to create an organization that has any kind of um, protections built into it. Um, you have to follow a certain set of templates that governments tell you are available for making organizations. You have to be, you know, a nonprofit, a C corp, a, a LLC, whatever the the things are in your jurisdiction. You have those options available to you, um, and uh, it could be cooperatives and that sort of thing. But one thing I've learned working with cooperatives is how constraining so many of these rules can be, and and how much they def- they determine the things that people end up um, uh, uh, doing together. And 
one of the the thing that got me excited about crypto was not like you know speculative magic money or or like real money or whatever like the, really because you know, that's what got me excited about it but <laughs> I, that's just me what's that i was saying that's that's what got me into this mess but you know i'm <laughs> okay, just speaking well, for myself here their own right um but the thing for me that was exciting was the possibility of new forms of organization and creative organization um is is opening the space of possibility for how people can do stuff together and um and i think in a lot of ways the experience so far has has borne that out that there's been a ton of experimentation in organizational design a lot of it has kind of run into to walls and barriers and challenges, but that's to be expected. Um, and I want to protect that space of experimentation. I think that is like deeply important for the fate of democracy and for the fate of like um, humanity, like our ability to see ourselves as as complex and rich uh, uh, social creatures. Um, we need to broaden our space of possibility um, in how we organize and and doubt. DAOs introduce a, a way of doing that by saying, okay, here's this whole space um, in which you can create durable, um, enforceable uh, organizational patterns that, um, that you know, do not have to follow a specific, specific template. Um, and so to me, on the one hand, the big priority is to make sure we don't, in the process of cracking down on the FTXs and, and that sort of thing, we don't lose that space of possibility yeah, um do we and close so, it that's right and so the question is like how do you create an interface so that 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 space of possibility can continue and and develop um without um you know without just getting folded into the constraints of of legal regimes yeah on the other hand you have to recognize that there's no such thing as an open space um it's all capturable and generally what happens when you create open spaces, like, for instance, the Internet, is that the structures of power in other parts of life end up colonizing them. Right. Um, and for instance, venture capital and 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 uh, and consolidated wealth end up capturing the decentralized protocols of the Internet. Um, and so similarly, in organizational life, I think you need you need to introduce also constraints to protect that creativity um, that prevent capture um, and abuse of that of that um, of that emerging world. Otherwise, what you're probably going to get is a rep, uh, an even worse kind of more dystopian replication <laughs> of the kinds of systems. That we're so yeah. those are the kind of two dual goals I'm interested in is protecting that space of creativity, both by enabling it to happen, but also by insulating it from some of the, the structures of hierarchy and wealth that a lot of people in these contexts don't want to see replicated. They, they're going to DAOs because they don't want you know, rich people that just control everything anymore, or um, because they want to create organizations that they can really co-own and co-govern. Um, and so I want to make sure that we have a spec in a way that can accomplish both of those things. Well, I think you have, you touched on it, in, uh, maybe Martin will say it's jargon, <laughs> so then we can get into it. But uh, my, um, we have, you had this notion of a network native organization, which is, I will, I really like, because it isn't necessarily a description of a DAO in opposition to the current structures. It's actually just 
approaching a native description of the thing itself, right? Like a networked native organization uh, versus some of the organizations you already named, like a C Corp, an LLC, a nonprofit. Um, a, going back to sort of episode two, I believe it was, um, with Pia Mancini from Open Collective, uh, you could kind of think about Open Collective as this sort of technological arbitrage around enabling different types of organizational structures so that the people who are within those structures don't have to worry about whether they're a LLC, C-Corp, S-Corp, or whatever, right? It's just like, no, you know what? You want to do a thing in the world? Just uh, here's the menu, pick the thing, and we'll you can go about your business, managing money and doing the jobs you want in the world, right? Um, and so then coming back from that, right, this is almost like a new flavor of that, um, this network native organization. How do you know you you're the one who used this language? Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, if you're the one really making the case for it here on the pod, which we're so maybe we're a little bit on your side, or we were kind of on your side, but you know, I would still like to hear in your own words, what is this thing, right? What is a network native organization? How does it differ from these organizations that preceded it? Yeah, I, I think this is deeply important because we we live in you know a world that is increasingly networked in in the ways we go about our lives. You know, um, we're having this conversation across oceans, um, and that's a very normal thing for many of us is to you know go through our day talking to people in different territorial jurisdictions. So why is it that the, those territorial jurisdictions should be the sole um, sites of of governing, you know, our our forms of connection? Um, you know, I think their territorial jurisdictions are probably quite important for you know for territorial things, um, but increasingly, you know, we need other kinds of jurisdictions, and um, and I think networks. The internet are is a is a, a you know a terrain in which we interact and operate and and build things together, um, and it should have its own jurisdictions. Um, I think this is, um, you know, th this is an opportunity to you know, build kind of new sites of of, of power and shared um, you know shared wealth and value and possibility, um, crossing borders uh, through organizational life. Um, you know, in the context of Open Collective, it's a platform I love. Um, it, for instance, enabled me and some friends to build um, social.coop, which is a, um, a non-territorial Mastodon instance uh, that is organized as a cooperative, um, though actually legally, we are just a fiscally sponsored project of a UK cooperative. Um, but it enables us to essentially build a network organization a virtual cooperative on top of that layer of abstraction. Still, we experience the you know some facts of of our of our territorial legality in there, um, and that's you know that's part of their model, and that that's okay. But they've enabled us to come a lot of the way. Um, now, blockchain technologies enable you to go a bit further, right? Because you have this possibility of self-enforcing contracts. So so it's not you know it doesn't necessarily go down at the end of the day to a cop with a gun standing there protecting you know your your legal contracts it is a smart contract that is that is ultimately the um you know the the, the base layer uh, of the organization and i think that's a really really important difference and some and and a, uh, a space of possibility that we need to explore so so um you know recognizing that the 
you know, the value and the need in a networked world to have the ability to build organizations that are not ultimately reducible to cops with guns and territorial jurisdictions, but are reducible to the things, to things that exist on the network so we can have truly more equitable kinds of relationships. So, so ultimately, if I'm collaborating with somebody in sub-Saharan Africa, you know, we're not relying on, you know, the arbitrage of our legal systems, you know, to, um, to, to, to adjudicate any dispute we have, we have, you know, a shared network space in which to adjudicate that dispute. Um, and, uh, you know, there's still certainly space for inequalities and that sort of thing. But I think that's, you know, it's a direction we need to be able to go in, in order to, you know, to build a world of, you know, global connection and, and coordination. Got it. And I think to enable that, right, you, one thing that I think we've really covered too, you need, you need to have some degrees of freedom in the, in, to experiment, some create some ability to experiment with the organizational form that you have, right? I think uh, one of one of our recent episodes, we touched on institutional diversity, right? Like there's, uh, there have been, Eleanor Ostrom wrote a great, great little tome on it as well. Just to kind of say, you know, what happens when you lose institutional diversity and what does institutional diversity look like? And so that's partly what we've, you know, on the pod have backed into is that there might be new ways to organize work, to organize the social relations around work that it, that are then enabled by institutional diversity. And uh, where, you know, and just to give the audience to be like, what are they, what are they talking about this stuff? Why does it matter? It was to give you a little bit of, just to give you a very clear example, right? Um, why, you know, if you take the, the open and collective example that Nathan was talking about and all that, um, at the end of the day, if you just want to, if you have some mission in the world that doesn't involve, uh, having a board and you know having having to have a board governor and a president would have you a lot a lot of what's happened especially you've been in activist spaces is that you know someone will go well i'll just be that person right just put my name on the thing right and then we're just all going to trust that that person doesn't abscond with our funds right and then that puts us in the frame of well okay well we didn't see that coming but now we have to go to the courts right and the courts ultimately enforced by the jackboots with the guns and, the, and all that, right? So that's just the way it goes. Whereas you know, what you were saying is on the other side of it, what if we could adjudicate these things with a set of smart contracts or the ability to rage quit, um, which we've covered before through Moloch DAOs and what have you. So just alternative ways that are enabled by new institutions that then yeah, can it, lead to new spaces of uh, conflict resolution or working together, what have you. Absolutely. And and some of it's very old. Like, you know, I just published an article with um Zora Zine um about this idea of nonlinear governance, right? And and this is an observation I've seen in a bunch of DAOs where they use language, nonlinear language to talk about their governance. They talk about seasons or epochs, or you know, they talk about uh, uh ways of thinking about their governance as being not just like um, you know, a linear and continuous process, but actually one in which um, in which it's non-continuous, in which you're able to respond radically to shifting environments. And this is something that's very hard in the context of uh, kind of traditional capitalist, uh, uh, you know, legal entities. Um, but it's something that you could program into the structure of a DAO. Maybe it behaves radically differently in a bear market than in a bull market, right? It just has a different set of rules. Um, and this is actually something that like 
um, is very historically present in um, in human societies. You know, a lot of like um, a lot of archaeological sites of indigenous um, uh, 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 civilization in the Americas is seasonal, right? In you know the the, the land that I live on is was um, inhabited seasonally, for instance, by the Arapaho people. Um, not all the time. It was you know, and and their governance would shift with with where they were um, because the conditions were radically different and their governance would shift when they're in wartime as opposed to in peacetime. Um, and, uh, you know, similarly, like Kevin Iwaki here in Colorado talks about like wartime DAOs and peacetime DAOs, you know? So, so the ability to, um, to, to have more flexibility in organizational arrangements also does, you know, contributes to, to what I and Federica Caragatti have called um, governance archaeology is the ability to build relationships between the things we need and the much longer legacies of human self-governance that are actually made more difficult by modern corporate law. That's super cool, man. And also, my, I'm somewhat annoyed at you for not sharing this article, but I'll let you. I'll let you have a pass this time. It's published yesterday. Fair enough. <laughs> it was a little, a little bit too, too uh, maybe at the buzzer for for us to have consumed it anyway and come at you with some good questions. But that looks really amazing. We'll put it in the show notes. Um, and I too have experience with that directly, right? In some of the DAOs that I've contributed to, uh, where you know work is not necessarily governed by the 40-hour work week with the eight-hour work day where you just do the start to the finish really more of a season. What are we going to focus on in this season? What? Are, and the season doesn't have to be organized around a particular deliverable. It could be everybody's. It could be every, you know, everyone could be doing their own thing. Some people could be working toward a very specific goal. Um, but there's all, always some way that we've decided how we're going to do the thing. And so, you know, contrasting that with Graber in this article, I was great. I can't wait to read this and put it in there just because what you're talking about is really interesting because uh, it comes back to what people have, um, you know, a very simplistic understanding of kind of poured you know, the gas on that fire was poured on by Jared Diamond and th those types who wrote over the years about like, well, you know, society started with uh, the seven various homo species, and then we prevailed, and then we found agriculture, and that was like, it was really great that we found agriculture, and now we can settle down. And But except when you go back and relitigate that record, it's all over the place, and that's a very nice little just-so story. <laughs> and so having that reflection of even how our own social relations evolved seasonally, um, which, you know, to speak to your example here, the one, the one thing that you know, Nathan is referring to is like uh, essentially in across North American primitive society, primitive societies, in um, or across say the um, Indus Valley or the Euphrates River Valley civilizations, uh, there wasn't really one particular way of organizing things, right? Like if you if you had if you were in conditions of scarcity. Uh, you might adopt a more command and control structure to make things more straightforward. It might look like a chieftain or king type structure in the areas of abundance. You might actually decentralize more and uh, people would get back to their social relations of sort of making fun of anyone who was seeking power. So we had a lot of wrinkles in our in our social relations and economic relations um, throughout time. And seeing that come back to life is pretty interesting. But um, to bring you back down a little bit, back to earth, getting back to the scaffolding to enable this type of uh, dynamism, right? I think is interesting. So um, we covered already some of the black marks on the space, right? The, the things that are being conflated 
with um, you know, crypto and DAOs, but that are to some extent also we are accountable for for those of us who work in the space. Um, one thing you really touch on is transparency, which I think is very important because a lot of folks who who come to crypto or who have been here for a long time are basically considered transparency as anything that you can see on the blockchain. It's like, well, it's right there. What more transparency do you need, <laughs> right? But that uh, that's really just scratching the surface of transparency. Like how is a decision made? How is a proposal drafted? Uh, how was the popular uh, support for it behind closed doors and or behind you know closed Discord channels <laughs> brought, brought together? Uh, tell us a bit about why why does the space need a policy platform for transparency? What does the pillar for that look like? I think there is just the, um, you know, th th this is in some respects a kind of fool's errand for, you know, the reasons you suggest is, is that if we want institutional diversity, um, you know, people are going to make decisions in diverse ways. And so it's hard to standardize what, you know, tra real transparency requires standardization um, so that information can be consolidated and understood. Um, and so it's a very, very hard challenge, but I think it's something we need to uh, establish as a kind of base expectation. And um, one thing that we've been doing in the meta governance project, which you mentioned earlier, is through this uh, effort called DAOSTAR. Uh, we, we're working on developing standards around DAOs, very minimal standards, but ones that support this logic of, of um, more transparent operations and governance, um, uh, particularly so that it becomes more possible for um, for algorithmic evaluation to occur, right, and and allows um, these organizations to say at the outset, you know, for instance, in conversations with regulators, um, you know, look, we are more our our you know, what the, the expectations placed on public companies are that, you know, you publish a report quarterly or something like that. Um, we're doing it continuously. Okay. So in a sense, all DAOs are behaving better than, you know, uh, public corporations. I don't think we're, we're anywhere near there in reality. Um, but I think that's, that's a, um, you know, an aspiration to have to actually exceed just by design. Um, the the level of of um, publicness uh, for um, uh, for these kinds of organizations. Another thing that this kind of thing enables is something that um, you know folks uh, uh, have been in the peer to peer space have been exploring for years, which is you know uh, for instance like Michelle Bowens and, and these types uh, talking about open book accounting and um, and in peer to peer networked kind of accounting structures. Um, enabling organizations by putting their um, accounting out in the open um, to actually connect their supply chains and their activities um, in a networked fashion um, much more openly. So, so um, you know, what would it look like if we had a world in which like the supply chain of Walmart was just totally out in the open. And then companies could look at it and say, oh, I can actually improve something on the supply chain here. That becomes That's a Martin question. <laughs> <laughs> right. If I've yeah. ever heard one. <laughs> totally. Uh, you know, it, it opens up, you know, doors to, to other kinds of, of business as well and other kinds of economic flows. Um, but, um, but from a regulatory perspective, you know, the, the logic of transparency here is just, is just, um, making sure that these activities are above ground in a way that even exceeds, you know, the previous environment. And, and that's something that 
you know, becomes a kind of rejoinder to something like FTX. It's like, okay, if you're, you know, on a blockchain, you know, and you're and you're claiming, you know, this this insulation from from regulation in some respects, you know, it all better be out there for for um, for mass consumption, um, because that is, you know, as as in our corporate system, um, that is an important tool for accountability, and it's a kind of it's a kind of non-negotiable base layer because when you don't have transparency, you end up with FTX-like behavior. I have uh, an interesting wrinkle to add to that one too as well, because you, you, you know, I believe when I was reading the article, you made an interesting rejoinder. I was like, ooh, that's an interesting one to pick on if we get him on the pod or remember to ask. It was basically around uh, allowing international anonymous participation to be judged by what folks do rather than uh, who or or where the participants are, which I think is really interesting because um, it brings back to the fore a topic we've talked about quite a few times, which is just the the uh, the efficacy of KYC AML and like how what what makes a regulator feel you know warm and fuzzy at night, right? And so for me personally, I think that uh, it was a big mistake in this space to make everything from day one publicly auditable and available. Because if I if I think about this just from the perspective of money, right? Um, Martin, you know, Martin doesn't have to know that I uh, spend you know, seven hundred dollars a week on uh, flat whites with oat milk, right? <laughs> he, but you know, he can go do that on the publicly audible blockchain if I'm paying in you know Bitcoin in, in El Salvador. <laughs> so. Uh, it, it, I've always thought it'd be great if we, you know, maybe zero knowledge or something like that gives us the ability to do this, re-gifts us that ability. But I'm really just interested to hear your, your thoughts on allowing international anonymous participation in DAOs, right? Pros and cons, right? Where, where it sounds like you land on the pro side, but I'm interested to hear a bit more. Yeah. I mean, I, I think we, we, there's so much more thinking that needs to happen around this context. And, and I think it's deeply paradoxical. I mean, for instance, I'm a, you know, critic of the, you know, failed U.S. sanctions regime, for instance, like, um, you know, the, the, the kind of, the kind of profound um, uh, human suffering that, for instance, sanctions around Cuba and Iran and, you know, even North Korea have caused um, and the amount of political efficacy that that those regimes have achieved is, you know, it, it's just devastating. Um, at the same time, you know, and so and so many people in crypto are like, okay, great, like we have a chance to like bypass some of these and you know, and 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 let's let's break them. But actually, in fact, in crypto economic thinking, um, organizational designs are all about sanctions, <laughs> um, sanctions uh, of of users, you know, whether it's taking away your ability to be a validator or something like that, you know, sanctions are how enforcement occurs, you know, in a different way in crypto economic design. So I think we need to have real conversations about like, you know, are we, are we able to build a different kind of regime that, um, that could actually achieve things um, for, you know, broader human benefit through these these um, more uh, uh, crypto economic forms of sanctions as opposed to political sanctions. But in general, you know, I I think it you know it's a, it's an essential value for for me to work toward a world in which um, arbitrary borders do not um, constrain freedom of of 
of living things, right? I mean, Absolutely. That, that is, you know, a profound form of violence in our world. And, um, and I, I want to build systems that don't um, replicate those, those arbitrary borders um, that, you know, constrain your possibilities based on the territory in which you were born um, in, in, in unjust ways. And um, so I, I, to me, that is absolutely a goal. Um, a goal uh, for building these kinds of network native organizations is just like selfishly having the possibility of collaborating with people in different places, you know, collaborating with people in China, despite, you know, what our leaders think about each other. Um, you know, uh, uh, collaborating with with people who have um, had very, very different kind of um, uh, life circumstances because of borders than 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 I've had. Um, those kinds of collaborations are are you know the to me the one of the major human goals uh, of this kind of work. But I don't want to pretend that it's it's easy. Um, you know, but we, I think we, we, we want to create the possibility of those spaces. I think, I think zero knowledge proofs are one really important tool. Um, I really appreciate the explorations that, for instance, I mean, Soleimani is doing around, um, around privacy pools and trying to figure out a kind of middle ground around these kinds of issues. Um, uh, he's still, you know, still involved in, in, um, you know, uh, uh, compliance with, with some of these, uh, regimes, but nevertheless, yeah. Um, trying to figure out how zero knowledge proofs can enable that 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 right combination of of privacy and exposure and and similarly I think an important distinction I should say about transparency right is that we're talking about organizations here right yeah you know not individual transactions um, yeah and I think organizational life is a space that should be subject to um, some de degree of uh, uh, of transparency but even that is 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 different. I mean, like families might have different kinds of transparency than than you know companies. Uh, uh, you know, nonprofit organizations might have different kinds of transparencies than um, you know uh, uh, you know activist uh, uh, networks. I don't know. Uh, you know, I think you know we want to be clear that that this is not a kind of one size fits all um, thing, but it's just a kind of general um, principle, especially when we're talking about you know, interface with regulatory regimes that, you know, that that some high bar of transparency is going to be important. Yeah, absolutely. And I think like the 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 trans the very important point you made there too is transparency on organizations, right? Because like the um the 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 promise of zero knowledge, right? And just because we just threw it out there, we didn't even talk about it really, just to quickly, you know, catch people up on that is that it doesn't even have to be a crypto organization. Like the application is so important, right? It's really just around um, uh, if you if you look around something like even buying a house or even just answering a simple question about yourself, you have to go through just the. It really, it's all about the who's asking part, right? And so, you know, if you if you say I would like to make this large housing transaction, okay, I, you have to trust that this notary will not look at everything you just gave them and take some of it and go down to the bank and get a loan in your name, right? Could there be a way for you to say, reveal exactly, prove exactly who you are without revealing the source of the information to the person who's asking you to prove it, right? That's really the promise of it. Um, cool. And so I think like that, you know, on the governance front, on the DAO governance front as well, that's a really 
though we might be in the doldrums of the seeking a policy platform from you know Nathan Schneider and others who are really trying to help us figure out how to provide scaffolding for these movements, uh, it's important to point out that this is one of the areas of active research and usage that is really promising, right? Even though we're in the bottom of this bear market, there are a lot of really great um, zero-knowledge EVM on Polygon, for instance, has these new organizations that are, that are experimenting with exactly this, being able to say, yes, we can comply with KYC, but we can also preserve privacy, which is a super interesting frontier, I think, just for social life, not just for crypto. Absolutely. So I think like, uh, that, you know, we've covered a lot of the of the policy platform here so far, but the one that's kind of been sitting there in the background <laughs> that I want to touch on, because we always touch on this with you, uh, is sort of just, I guess, the way participant control, right? And this one is a very frequent theme on the pod, because with participant control comes the issue of, well, how do I make this thing investable? If I'm going to not give up control in it, and I want to attract investor interest, I'm going to have to find a way to strike a balance there. And I think both Martin and I have landed on the kind of, it sounds like you're not totally, you're not totally sour on co-ops, but uh, we, you know, capitalizing co-ops is this very old problem. And so the, the very old and difficult problem. And so coming back to participant control, you know, so far it seems that if investors don't have control of a potential investment, they or or if that governance is not clear to them, then they're unlikely to make that investment. But on the other side of this, we've talked to quite a few guests on the pod to stress the uh, the epistemology of local actors, right? How the ones who are on the bottom up doing the things often have the tacit knowledge to make the direct sort of judgments about what should and shouldn't be done. What is the best path? What is the best path forward? So you made participant control a really interesting part of the platform that you had uh, recently sort of you know, uh, explicated on. How do you see those two interests playing together? So, you know, this this gets into that category I mentioned earlier about protections from, from the consolidated powers of the world outside. And this is something that people in Dow land are experiencing really directly and profoundly, which is, that, hey, we built these like open participatory organizations and everybody can vote or whatever, but actually a few whales, a few large holders or VCs um, are in charge. And, you know, if you look at like the range of the major DAOs, the Uniswaps and so forth, like they are VC, they're heavily VC controlled. Um, and and um, it's a, um, you know, and it's something that it, you know, frustrates a lot of people in the ecosystem. And, you know, I've seen kind of internal reports, for instance, in some of these contexts where people are essentially calling for, oh, we should have done this more like a cooperative from the beginning, because um, this, this kind of openness that we, that we enabled, enabled capture in turn. Um, and so what I propose here is if we're serious about, for instance, you know, a certain category of, of flexible and enabled organizational experimentation, I think it's not too much to ask to say, okay, one constraint on this kind of organization is that like it's controlled by the people who actually participate in it. Um, and, and I think that's actually true to a lot of the ideals of what people participating in this space want. Um, and, and I think a lot of things can emerge when you introduce a constraint like that. 
right? And the market will respond. Um, you know, the problem in my view with, for instance, um, investable investability for cooperatives is not so much that cooperatives are not investable. It's that they're in an ecosystem with investor, with, with supercharged corporate forms that are designed for investor control and designed for investor exploitation. And so they're um, in, in an, and there is comparatively little financial infrastructure for cooperatives. So as a result, you have a totally unbalanced ecosystem where of course nobody's going to invest in a cooperative because like you can make so much more money doing this other thing. And, you know, I would, I would argue if we want to enable, you know, participant controlled, you know, economic democracy, this sort of thing, like we need to draw some lines in the same way that we draw lines around like, hey, you can't just murder your competitors. You're going to have to build market <laughs> responses around the fact that you can't just murder your competitors. Right. And people do that generally. Yeah. Right. Like, um, and, and, you know, all of our markets have constraints and once the constraints get introduced, you know, market actors, entrepreneurs, investors, it's amazing to me how quickly they stop complaining once the new law passes and immediately get to work on adapting around it. Right. And what, you know, what I'm proposing here is that we just insist that, you know, if you're in this category of DAO um, mm -hmm. and you're going to be given this permission by society to experiment and explore that like the people who are doing the things are, you know, are the people who are in control there, you know, there are still lots of ways to enable capital access in those contexts, non-controlling stock. You can have like rage quit provisions so that, you know, investors can do some serious damage if they don't like what's going on. You know, you can yeah. have all kinds of forms of investor um, influence um, and and um, and you know that that's that's very real, um, but I think it's not unreasonable to say, okay, you know, actually this category of organizations needs to be controlled by by the people who are directly involved, whether that's entities that are joining together to do something together, or um, uh, or workers who are contributing their labor. Um, and this is something we have precedence for. For instance, I'm part of an investment club um, that invests in local cooperatives in Colorado. And um, we exist because of an exemption in securities and tax law and so forth that enables us to be a self-governing investment club um, and um, and not have and 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 in, involve the participation of non-accredited investors um, as long as we are all participating, you know. Um, we get to we get to do that thing. Um, we get to experiment and explore and invest our small dollars um, as long as we are not hiring somebody else to make the decisions for us. We have to make our own decisions. So there are there are precedents for this. It's not a crazy idea. Um, and and actually, I would like to see you know this kind of thinking spread across the economy to, to yeah. build that expectation of participant control in all kinds of organizational life. And, and realign the social contract between participation and investors. Um, and I think we're seeing very acutely the need for that in the context of DAOs. I certainly see that very acutely in the context of all kinds of shared ownership that I've been involved in. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and, and, you know, this again is, is an attempt to use DAOs to show the power, you know, of this kind of approach, but you can't do it if, 
if the um, you know if you're if you're tying you know the the participant controllers hands behind their back um, and you're also letting the investors go crazy. Well, I think it's also important to point out, like, what does it look like when you say investors go crazy, right? So I think um, one of the things that comes to my mind is in this space is um, uh, the the Uniswap protocol, right? It's one of the biggest protocols out there. It's a multi-billion dollar market cap, uh, billions and billions and billions of value flow through it every day. Um, it simply just enables you to swap one crypto asset for another uh, permissionlessly. Uh, for the most part, depends on your jurisdiction, or if you're at, and if your wallet is on a uh, U.S. sanctioned list now. But uh, that aside, um, what actually happened, which can kind of demonstrate your point a little bit, and let, we can get into maybe an analyzing a little bit before we close out, is um, about four months ago uh, there was a proposal brought forth on the Uniswap forum to launch Uniswap on the BNB chain, which is Binance's chain. And so the, a person came forward and said, "Hey, we should do this because it'll give you a potential. It will give us a potential, you know, competitive advantage over whoever." Uh, I don't remember the exact details on that front, but someone proposed it, and um, Andreessen Horowitz owns. Uh, after a little bit of forensic analysis from folks in the forums, people found out that well, Andreessen Horowitz owns forty-one point five million tokens directly. And likely over 55 million in a circulating supply of 750, roughly. And so, what that means is the way the way the protocol governance was constructed, they actually hold a unilateral, an almost unilateral veto on on anything they don't like, because you only need four percent of the tokens to do that. And so, um, this you know strikes at the heart of two things. Even it's not just participant control; it's efficient decentralization. Even right, like if one party can come in and have that kind of voting power, I'm, I'm interested to hear what Gary Gensler and the others thinks about you know the even if it's distributed through eleven wallets or what have you, right? And so what ended up happening is you know a, a community of developers and all that were like, hey, we see value here, we should build out to it, and uh, the VCs and Andreessen Horowitz almost completely unilaterally vetoed it. They weren't able to in the end because they couldn't get the 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 <laughs> Funnily enough, the wallets they delegated to voted against them. All right, so that's the that's the Stanford universities, the pension funds. They have they they've published about this before. They're like, we're going to decentralize and delegate our tokens to you know uh, these public institutions. And yeah, they invited I, us to do that as well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so that I think strikes at the heart of what you're talking about. You're a part for the participant control and democracy because. Uh, this is, you know, people are like, what are you talking about? The VCs only took like 15% of that token supply. And it's like, but did you read the writing and the code on how the voting actually works? A policy platform of some kind could ensure a scaffolding that says, well, if you're going to raise on money on this instrument and then issue a token, uh, the investors potentially can't be able to take, you can't be, you're not necessarily able to sell so-and-so amount of the tokens, right? So there's a lot of ways to intervene in the system, but I think this is, you know, just to make it really clear for people, this makes the participant control and decentralization argument very straightforward, right? If you're trying to then work backward to why, why doesn't why do Nathan and other folks care about this space so much? That seems like that's just providing scaffolding that enables people to say, all right, this, this is, this is the playing field just so that we don't, rebuild a concentration in voting and economic power. 
Yeah, and, and I think, you know, you mentioned sufficient decentralization, right? And that is a concept that comes not from like crypto land so much as from, you know, a speech uh, by an SEC official in like 2018, right? Yes. And 2017, somewhere around that about like Ethereum, you know, whether Ethereum should be treated as a security. And now sufficient decentralization is like a concept that any lawyer for a project that's deploying a protocol has to be thinking about. And they've kind of figured out some sense about what they think that means in terms of distribution and so forth. But to me, that's really interesting because that's one example of a, even a very weak policy signal um, that that from, a, a in some respects, a very hostile regulator that actually called the crypto community like to, to live up to its own claims, right? I mean, without that, how many of these DAOs would be even more consolidated than they are? Um, and, and how much more of a joke would decentralization be? Um, and so, you know, my interest is actually looking at examples like that and saying, and seeing that as a kind of policy and, and recognizing, okay, if we, let's say we actually do want decentralization of ownership, we think that's important. I'm not sure it's always important, uh, but, but say for a particular reason, we think a particular kind of decentralization is important. Um, great. We need to build policy around that. We need to build protocol policy around that. You know, maybe, um, you know, you have a, have a time where like you have an L2 on Ethereum or, or a, a particular chain in Cosmos that only accepts um, DAOs that are, you know, sufficiently decentralized by X criterion. And if they're not, their contracts stop running. Or if they're not, the tokens get redistributed in a different kind of way. Um, and so, you know, this is built into the structure of, of the system. I, I just think we need to be much more intentional about the relationship between the, the, the aspirations we claim yeah. Uh, uh, around this space, around hey, this is democratizing finance and this is this is decentralizing power. I'm I'm like great, okay. Your systems are not yet set up to actually achieve that. Let's get to the point where we can. That's yeah. what I'm interested in. You know. Yeah, and I think like, the... like okay, let's call let's let's um you know call call this ecosystem on its claims. Okay, you want to replace the Federal Reserve? Great. Let's find something that is actually you know. Um, that is actually a comparable governance um, uh, structure of the Federal Reserve. Right now, you know, the, at least the, the Federal Reserve is like the, you know, demonic evil of the universe, right? But like, at least they care about unemployment and inflation. You know, yeah. the Bitcoin miners do not care about unemployment and inflation. <laughs> yeah, I do. I would rather have a system of monetary governance that cares about some aspects of human existence, you in, know, in rather fact, than like, yeah. you know, the algorithm and the yeah. you know the, the the mining rewards it's it's you, um, you might even say that the bitcoin miners uh are making bets on more inflation for their benefits <laughs> i mean ways. there are all kinds of perverse incentives right there yeah and, exactly. um and i think we sometimes have to appreciate like um you know when we complain about politics and we complain about government and all this stuff is like actually there's a lot of infrastructure there that is that was built for a reason, maybe we could redesign it differently, but we have a lot of catching up to do. Um, and, and we have kind of two, you know, one critical question when we talk about DAO regulation and, and this sort of thing is, is the question of, do we embed DAOs into the system um, or do we craft DAOs as an alternative layer, 
right? And there are two basic like approaches to this, right? So you have states like Colorado here where we have this LCA, it's not DAO specific, but lots of DAOs are using it. It's a cooperative statute. Um, in Wyoming, they have the LLC. Vermont has an LLC, you know, there are these sorts of things. Um, and then there is the approach that this group called Koala, C-O-A-L-A mm -hmm. has been taking, which is, which is you don't incorporate the DAO directly in the state. You instead create a framework by which the state gives permission and recognition to DAOs that operate um, without having to incorporate. And so you create this, this, this recognition, this, it's almost a diplomatic recognition by the state to say, okay, if you build a DAO according to certain standards um, that include transparency and that sort of thing, um, we're going to, we're going to, you know, we're not going to treat you as an unregistered partnership. You know, we're going to recognize that there is, there's something valid going on here. Um, uh, but you give a lot more autonomy to how the DAOs organize and that sort of thing. And, you know, I think that that's a really interesting distinction and a really important question is, is what we're talking about something that's going to be embedded in the territorial governments, or are we pushing for something that is more autonomous? I, as much as I love Colorado co-ops um, and Colorado co-op DAOs, you know, in my heart of hearts, I want that more distinct layer. Um, but in order to have that more distinct layer, we need, we need a protocol uh, uh, policy. You know, we need the ability to do things that governments do to make life safer, you know, and, and prevent harm. We need the ability to um, crack down on deeply harmful activity. Um, mm -hmm. You know, like the critical moment in Ethereum, right, was responding to the DAO hack. It was an almost apocalyptic response to an apocalyptic event. Um, but those kinds of things are, are just going to happen over and over again and worse, unless we have the structures in place where we don't have to fork the entire blockchain, but can actually just recognize, okay, that that smart contract is deploying murder drones, um, and <laughs> you know, uh, uh, we just need we need the ability to turn those that sort of thing off in order yeah. to have a healthy ecosystem. And yeah. so, if we're claiming the right and the the the, the desire to have these network native, native organizations. Um, that I think are are deeply important for you know the future like maturing of, of human civilization. You know we we also need the ability to to hold these things to account and to be able to have those those debates about policy and politics and what values matter. What values do we want to hold um, these entities accountable to? Yeah, and I think like one thing then maybe to end on is like. We have you have you have, you've kind of mapped out this vision for how what we can enable with network native organizations and you you had referenced the territorial communities and governments, right? And I think this is might be an interesting question to flip around on you to sort of uh take us to a close, which is we both talked quite a bit about how DAOs could present an opportunity for folks to and practice the democracy muscle right make it stronger and think about different ways to exercise it ways to make it more dynamic or try it out in ways we haven't really done other than every four years for our president and if you're depending on you if you're in if you're in the u.s you know your school council and all the other people you spend three minutes reading about um but i want to ask you 
as a person who's practiced a lot of this in the real world, what's a way that you think people could actually, what are the training grounds that people can find in the real world for this type of stuff? What has been most fruitful for you other than uh, online network native organization? Yeah, it's a, it's a great uh, question. And, and, um, you know, I'm, I live in a relatively small town where, you know, it's not uncommon to go to a, a cafe and see the mayor sitting there and say hi. And, you know, we know each other. And my wife's been, you know, lobbying him around like the library district for the last few, <laughs> couple of years. And, and um, so those practices of participation um, are, you know, are very much a part of uh, very much a part of my life around housing policy, around, you know, this, this library project around, uh, things like that. And, uh, you know, at the same time, I, you know, I see a lot of people in my community and others, you know, who don't know how, don't know a way in. Um, and at the same time, I think a lot of these skills are transferable. I mean, for instance, with social.coop, this little Mastodon instance that I mentioned earlier, you know, that's been one site where I've, gotten to practice those muscles. And I really, I really value it. And I've tried to like keep notes on it to share my learnings with others. Here's how to develop a proposal and pass it. And, um, and I think about those lessons uh, of my network native organizations when I'm also like engaging, you know, in the context of, of my more local community, um, because they're, they're actually not very different. Um, and and you you get better the more you do it. You feel more comfortable. You feel less lost. You feel less helpless and hopeless. Um, and uh, and you know the, the, these things really really blend together. I I I I don't think the goal here is to, for instance, supplant local governments or even national governments <laughs> or, or any of this sort of you know libertarian dreams. But I do think there is a real um, need to. Um, lean less and put less, um, you know, to, to rebalance how we place our governance burdens. You know, when we have issues like climate change, when we have issues um, that are truly transterritorial, um, we need the base, you know, we need the ability to um, govern those in transterritorial jurisdictions. We need to be able to um, have spaces that are appropriate to those challenges. And, um, you know, and and when you have that balance, right? I think you know that participating in politics is, you know, is often a pleasure, and it's and and it's it's fun. It it roots out a lot of the like depression that people get from staring at Fox News all day, um, or whatever <laughs> kind of news they look at. Like it is, you know, so much of news consumption is built around disempowerment. It's built around teaching people that they have no, uh, that that everything is too big for them. And they have no, um, uh, they, there's nothing that they can do other than be angry. Um, the more you participate, whether it's physically locally or virtually locally, um, uh, uh, in spaces that are a size at which you can actually make a difference, it, you know, it it just shifts the psychological and political, you know, calculation of all these things. So I just, I just invite people to ask, you know, where can I exercise those muscles? Where can I practice that kind of work? How can I work my way into ladders of participation? Um, uh, you know, because it, it it shifts your imagination for everything else. Awesome. Well, thank you for 
Thank you for that nice call to action at the end. I know I kind of set you up for it, but it's good to hear what you do in your daily life and areas where people can think about getting involved in. Because to me, that's really a lot of what I've seen in my experience in the DAO space is that people experience a an increase in their agency. Like they feel like they can have an effect on the world. And that's a lot of what ends up, you know, getting people going in the space. And there's still a lot to do, but maybe that's the nugget of what actually gets us through this bear market. <laughs> so Nathan, the last thing we like to ask folks like yourself is uh where can people follow you to stay on stay up on what you're doing? Cause I mean, I'm connected to you <laughs> in a number of ways. And I was like, wait, you published something in Zora? <laughs> so where do we go to stay up on Nathan's work? Um, I'm on most, a lot of social media networks, um, NTN SNDR, um, which is like my name without vowels. Uh, and, um, I'm particularly happy on Mastodon these days on social.coop. Um, though I'm also on Twitter. Um, I have a book coming out, uh, hopefully around the end of the year or early next year called Governable Spaces. That is a kind of big academic tome that will, it maps out a lot of these questions around like why governance in online life matters and and um, how we could build it and how people are building it. Um, and uh, you know, in the meantime, you know, I still keep churning out little articles here and there. Um, and and also uh, on my website, I keep a record of all those NathanSchneider.info. Awesome. Well, thank you as always for joining us, Nathan. Such a pleasure. Good to see you, um, you know, and thanks for all you do. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of The Ownership Economy. Don't forget to like and subscribe. 